I got into a really interesting conversation this week um, with somebody who I'd never met before. And do you know, sometimes when you get talking to somebody who's a complete perfect stranger and you're pretty sure you're probably never going to see each other again, you actually sometimes, if you, you sort of click and you can get into quite a, you know, you can speak sometimes a bit more openly and freely. Um, a bit like being on a plane. Have you had that experience? You get into a conversation, you know you're going to part ways, never see each other again, and you actually get into a really great conversation. Well, this was a bit like that. And he was a very interesting guy, um, retired, and he, um, you know, it was obvious that I was ordained, so he asked me, well, how did you get into the church? And so I told him the story of how that happened. And after I fed, shared my story with him, I felt like, you know, I was free to ask him uh, whether he, well, the question I asked him was, how about you? Are you a man of faith? You know, I think he must have been expecting the question because he'd asked me a pretty direct question. And I just wanted to know, you know, well, wh- what does he make of that? You know, spiritually, where's he coming from? Is he a Christian? I wanted to ask it in as non-threatening a kind of way as I could think of. So I said, are you a man of faith? And he smiled and he kind of, um, he gave a kind of half answer. He sort of said, well, you know, he, he's not sure, um, it depends how you kind of define it. He said he likes to think of himself as a Christian, but, you know, when the census comes around, then he would tick, you know, Church of England. But he, as he, he smiled, he said to me, you know, but you might not think, you know, is that a pro- am I a proper Christian? You know, he, re- he sort of said to me, well, what do you think? And I don't know what you would have done in that uh, situation, but I, I just kind of thought, well, I just batted the conversation away in a different direction, even though we were talking perhaps more openly than would be normal. Uh, you know, it's not my place, is it, to judge? You can't, Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. I can't say whether or not someone, you know, despite being ordained, I'm not the gatekeeper of who is or who isn't a Christian. So um, it, it's not my place to judge. How can any of us possibly judge who is a Christian or not? And yet... Jesus can. I mean, who's Jesus to judge who's a Christian? Well, he's Christ. He's, it's his religion. He's allowed to say who is and who isn't a Christian. And in these words, these verses, which I think have got to be some of the most challenging in the whole of the New Testament, he actually says who is not a Christian. Have a look down. Three times it's repeated. He says in verse 25... You know, if, uh, verse 26, sorry. If anyone's coming after me and doesn't hate their family, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And again in verse 27, whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And again in verse 33, same four words again. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Yeah, these are unbelievably challenging words, aren't they? Jesus said some many things which are incredibly peaceful and hope-filled and inspirational and encouraging and lovely and sweet that everybody loves to hear, regardless of whether they're a Christian. He also said some things which are amazingly difficult to understand and challenging. And these, I suppose, are some of the most challenging words in the whole of the New Testament, I guess. Um, so I really apologise if you were hoping for a nice, 
relaxing Sunday morning service and you are uh, listening to this this morning, this is not relaxing to hear what Jesus has to say, doesn't it? Many people, I suppose, would want to just ignore Jesus' words here, just gloss over them, pretend he never said them. In fact, that's what, Christoph, if you could show this, look at this. Uh, Fred actually scribbled this passage out of my Bible this week. Can you believe that? Look at this. He's actually, my, this passage has been open on my desk all week because I've been studying it. And uh, so Fred must have snuck in at some point during the week, taken my fountain pen, and he's scribbled. Amazing how he scribbled exactly on the start of the verses which we're actually looking at this morning. I don't know how he got that so precise. And he's just scribbled them out. I guess plenty of people would probably want to do the same, maybe not literally, but just scribble out what Jesus says here. Let's not listen to it. Thanks, Christoph. You can take that down. Did Jesus really say this? You know, how can we square that with the fact that he was constantly telling everyone to love? Love, 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 love. Love your neighbour. Love your enemy, even. Now he's saying, hate? Did he really say it? I mean, some people might say, well, maybe Jesus didn't actually say this. You know, maybe it's, you know, been written down wrong. But Jesus actually, well, Luke, whose gospel we're reading, trouble is Luke says he carefully, meticulously investigated everything from the beginning. You know, he hasn't just slapdash written down what Jesus says. He, was, he wasn't making it up. And if he was making it up, which I guess some people might go, well, didn't they just make up the Bible to control people? You hear people say that. Oh, the Bible's just made up to control people. Well, if you were making it up, you would never make this up. You would dilute the difficult teachings of Jesus, water them down, make them more palatable and easier to swallow than making up something as hard to understand as this. So I think that the only plausible explanation for what on earth this is doing in Luke's gospel is that this is something that Jesus actually said. In which case, what on earth did he mean? I think we've got to conclude that Jesus was using incredibly dramatic language to make, I think hyperbole even, to make the point that discipleship really requires us to be all in. All in. Wholehearted. Committed. Christianity, Jesus says, is is kind of all or nothing. You can't be kind of a Christian. You can't be sort of Christian, a little bit Christian. You know, we either, I think, according to Jesus, we're either a Christian or we're not. And if we are, then we're all in. But if we're not, then Jesus says, actually, that's not really the discipleship which he's looking for. I mean, look at the way that the passage concludes in verse 34. Have a look at verse 34. Jesus says, you know, elsewhere, he says, we're the salt of the earth, doesn't he? Well, he says, well, look, salt is good, but what if it loses its saltiness? It's no good for anything. It's got to be thrown away. So you've got two kinds of salt, either salty salt or unsalty salt. You're either salty or you're not. You you can't be half salty, Jesus says. You're either a disciple or you're not. I think as well, it's worth just observing the word which Jesus uses, which he wants us to be. It, it actually, it's not Christian, is it? He doesn't say, oh, you've got to be a Christian. The word Christian, I think, came later. The word which Jesus is actually after to describe those of us who are sitting here in the pew this morning is disciple. Yeah, that's the title of this passage, isn't it? The cost of being a disciple. And I just wonder whether that focuses the question a bit. If we're sort of sitting here this morning and thinking, well, am I a Christian or not? Well, to say you're a Christian is one thing, Um, what about to say you're a disciple? Would you say you're a disciple of Jesus? You know, that kind of um, ups the stakes a little bit, doesn't it? True Christianity, though, according to Jesus, is 
discipleship. That's what Jesus is after. It's interesting, the contrast. Look at verse 25. The contrast between the crowds and the disciples. So large crowds were traveling after Jesus. But do you know what? I don't think Jesus was really interested in drawing a crowd. Crowds are quite fickle. They're here one minute and then the next minute they're gone after something else. So Jesus turns to this crowd and says, will you be my disciple? If you're going to follow me, this is what it involves. So what does discipleship look like? If we're going to be all in for Jesus, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it requires counting the cost. Counting the cost. So the cost of discipleship is what it says at the top here. And Jesus says we need to have our eyes open about if we are going to follow Jesus, what that might cost us to follow him. Um, It's important to recognise, I think, the background to what being a disciple meant at the time when Jesus said these words. So the big difference between when Jesus was preaching and our day is culturally, in Jesus' day, to be a Christian was to belong to a persecuted minority. So I think that's it. we've got to understand that if we're going to understand verse 26, where Jesus says we've got to hate our family. Well, actually, um, if you were going to follow Jesus, it wasn't a Christian country like ours kind of is. You know, actually, Jesus was killed, and followers of Jesus in the first century often got killed. So that meant, you know, actually, <laughs> you needed to be sure what you were getting into. It explains why Jesus wants them to be all in. I mean, in the early church, there was no such thing as turning up on us to church. You know, maybe I'll come, maybe I won't, depending on what else I got on that weekend. You know, you, didn't, you weren't half in. It was basically, you know, there was huge social pressure not to be a Christian. It was almost, if you imagine, like the opposite of Victorian England. Like, think what it must have been like in Victorian England. If you don't go to church, you know, actually, uh, you know, people might notice that you weren't in church. There might be negative consequences to not being a Christian in Victorian England. Well, in Jesus' day, it was the exact opposite. If you were a Christian, there would be hugely negative consequences. You might even be sort of shunned and cut off from your family. Increasingly, though, I think, interestingly, that's becoming the case today, as we become a kind of post-Christian country. Um, I caught up with a friend recently, Hannah and I um, caught up with a friend from our previous church, they were on their way through, came, dropped in to Melksham to visit us, a little bit younger than me, uh, became a Christian three or four years ago, did an Alpha course, started coming along to the church, um, joined a Bible study home group, and has gone, he's gone all in. He's really um, become a disciple of Jesus. But his parents aren't particularly happy about it. Um, he, he actually, I mean, he's from quite a traditional English family. Yeah, they go to church at Christmas and Easter. They probably tick Church of England on the, on the census. But for them, he was telling us, it's as though he's, t- he's taking his religion far too seriously for them. They've actually noticed a change in him. Uh, he's, his priorities have all changed, the way he spends his money. They question, hang on a minute, why have you changed the way that you spend your money? The way he approaches relationships and dating. He's got a new Christian girlfriend. They don't share a room. Why don't they share a room? You know, what, what's going on? It's almost as though the way that he's living his life is a bit of a repudiation of the way that they brought him up. And it's almost as though they're thinking that this guy loves Jesus more than he loves us. 
I think that's what Jesus means when he says we, we might have to hate our family. He doesn't mean literal hate. Of course, I mean, this friend of mine doesn't hate his family. Of course he loves his family. But Jesus is saying that actually, if Jesus comes first, then by comparison, all other loves are secondary. Well, everything else comes in underneath. Remember the parable from last week where the guy says, oh, I can't come to the banquet because I just got married. Jesus is calling for him to be the first in our heart. And he's saying to us, well, have we calculated the potential cost of what following Jesus might mean for our relationships? It might be that the implications of discipleship are a knock-on effect on our family relationships, as Jesus says here, but the cost might be something completely different. We might have a family who are Christians and therefore, you know, actually, you know, they understand what it means for us to follow Jesus as well. But it might be the impact that it has on our job. Uh, or our career, or the way that we spend our money, or the way that we spend our time, or our home, and what we do with our home. If Jesus is calling us to be all in, you know, actually, one friend was talking about they work in government, they're a Christian, they've got to be incredibly careful about who they even admit that to, because actually, loving Jesus first, if people found out about that, that might have a huge consequence for them in their career. And what Jesus is saying is that to follow him, we've got to be willing to lay everything down. In fact, he says, we've got to be willing to lay down our entire life. Look at verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Or in the same way, it's the same thing, but slightly different words in verse 27, isn't it? Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciples. And carrying your cross being means willing to be able to give up everything, even laying down your very life. That's what the first disciples did. Don't worry about turning to it. Um, but in chapter five, Jesus describes the calling of the first disciples. What happened? Simon Peter was fishing. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for people. They pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Same thing with Levi. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. That's what discipleship might cost. In chapter 18, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, sell everything, and then come and follow me. And he went away sad because he wasn't willing to pay that cost. And Jesus, uh, uh, Peter said, we have left all we had to follow you. And that is what the cost of discipleship might involve. It might mean giving something up or being willing or prepared to allow Jesus to change our priorities. And are we willing to pay that cost? Discipleship requires counting the cost. It requires going all in. It requires going all the way to the end of our life. Look at verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower You've got to sit down, count the cost, and see if you have enough to complete it. Have a look at, um, Chris, I'll stick up this next uh, picture. Have you seen this before? This is the Ryugyong Hotel. I don't know whether I'm pronouncing that right. But it's the tallest building in North Korea. 105 stories, 330 metres tall. Taller than the Shard in London. Construction started in 1987 and stopped in 1992 when they ran out of money. And now it sits there derelict. Verse 29, if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it, 
I mean, look at that, it's ridiculous, isn't it? What a waste. Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. And Jesus is saying to us with tears in his eyes, don't do that. Don't start out building the Christian life. I'm sure some of us will know people who started out being a Christian and then they've decided, actually, do you know what? I can't do this anymore. I can't finish because they didn't count the cost properly. Billy Graham died recently, didn't he, a few years ago? And uh, he lived to be 99 following Jesus. And he wrote a book shortly before he died entitled Nearing Home, Life, Faith and Finishing Well. They love that finishing well. What a goal. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all finished well? No matter where we are with our building project or our discipleship, that's got to be a wonderful goal to finish well. This is what Billy Graham wrote. He says, I never thought I'd live to be this old. I'll soon celebrate my 93rd birthday. I know it won't be long before God calls me home to heaven. More than ever, I look forward to that day. Not just because of the wonders I know heaven holds in store for me and for every believer, but because I know that finally all the burdens and sorrows that press down upon me at this stage of my life will be over. As a young man, I never would have guessed what lay in store for me after giving my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what becoming a Christian involves giving our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of my sin, putting my entire life into his hands. I laid down my dreams and fully embraced God's plan by faith, trusting that he would lead me all the way. He did, he is, and he will. Discipleship involves going all in. It involves going all the way to the end. We had our quinquennial inspection on Thursday. Quinquennial inspection, where every five years the architect comes around the church here. And uh, a few of us were here with ladders so that we could help the architect get up into every bit of the roof. I mean, all around the outside of the building, we had to get the ladder, put it up there so he could get up onto that bit. Then we came around and he could get up onto that. He needed to inspect every stone, every slate, every joist, every... Yeah, every nook and cranny. And actually, I think (laughs) it was a bit nerve-wracking. You think, gosh, what is the architect going to find? What's he going to shine his light on that might need sorting out? And it struck me that I think actually discipleship is a little bit like that. Just Jesus is the great architect, and actually it'd be incredibly tempting to say to him, oh, yeah, Jesus, oh, yeah, come and... Oh, but don't go in there. Please don't look under that, you know... I'll give you my life, but oh, don't interfere with my relationships. Please don't mess around with my finances. But Jesus says in verse 33 that discipleship involves giving him everything, letting him peer in everywhere. Is there some area of our life where we haven't let him? C.S. Lewis said, God's work in our lives can be painful, but his ultimate goal is to transform us Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing. You're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. 
throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's what discipleship involves. It's costly. If we had to pay that cost ourselves, it would be impossible. We wouldn't be able to. We can't lay down our lives. We don't want to. We don't want him to go in every room and start messing around. We don't want to put Jesus ahead of our family. We're hugely tempted occasionally. I think I'm probably not the only one in this room. Don't stick your hand up. But I bet other people have been tempted to give up being a Christian. You know what? It's too hard. But Jesus Christ is the one who paid the cost for us. If we will let him foot the bill, Jesus Christ is the one who went to the cross for us. He took up his cross first. And on that cross, he laid down his entire life for us. On the cross, he actually was cut off from his family. His father forsook him. But on the cross, Jesus completed the task which he had set before him. He said, it is finished. And when we realise that, that he's the one who will help us follow him, and we can place our hands in his, walk with him, he will enable us to be his disciples. Let's pray.